Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fit started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. So if you are a returning listener, welcome back. If you are a first time listener, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you click that subscribe button and then leave a review in iTunes. Now, today we're going to talk about some hand stuff. We're going to talk about scaphoid fractures and we have Dr. Suzanne Roberts, who will be talking to us on scaphoid fractures a little bit more about dr roberts she did her med school at pennsylvania state university college of medicine she did her residency at the harvard combined orthopedic residency program she's actually the chief uh, resident at massachusetts general hospital and brigham's hospital uh and women's faulkner hospital during her last year and then she did her fellowship in hand surgery at the hospital for special surgery so today we talk about Scaphoid fractures, we talk about the anatomy of scaphoid fractures, a couple of different classifications for scaphoid fractures, and how to treat them, how to treat non-unions, how to, uh, you know, the operative indications for scaphoid fractures. So we go over a lot, but without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Suzanne Roberts on scaphoid You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Roberts, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you on, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys about scaphoid fractures. Oh yeah, this is, I feel like we, I feel like we learn like the very um, general details in med school and then you learn a little bit more in residency and then, you know, it's not, of course, until you're in the hand rotation until you um, can dive a little bit deeper in a scaphoid fracture, which I'm actually on my hand rotation now. So um, I'm looking yes. forward to the talk. <laughs> so we typically start off you know just asking a couple of questions getting to know you and then we get into the topic in a while so um first question just a general question met what interested you in hand or what made you kind of choose um, that specialty um i mean i love hand because i don't have to choose a specialty almost so I get to work on arthritis. I get to, you know, do sports cases. I get to do some more kind of plastic surgery type of stuff with flaps and nerves. Um, I get to do trauma. Uh, so I still get to use all of those skills. Um, and I, you know, I do enjoy the, the micro work. You kind of have to like some of the micro. Uh, that's, that's part of the job. Um, so that's kind of what drew me to it. I, I got to do all the things that I had studied in, in residency. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of um I didn't realize that until until maybe a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I was talking to another hand guy. He's like, Oh, no, I actually do, you know, total shoulders, total elbows, I do all of it. So I was like, Oh, I didn't thought it was just like, you know, hand. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm definitely no, I'm, I'm so. a full upper extremity surgeon. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Um, so for those listening that may be uh interested in hand, you know, just keep that in mind. Um, another question we have is are there now that you, you know, you're intending, you did, you know, your years of residency, you did your uh, fellowship training. Are there any habits that you have, um, that you have got as an attending that you didn't have as a resident, like, like things that you start to do that you notice that you wish you did earlier? Well, I think as an attending, you have the time to sort of, uh, I mean, you're really just immersed in your specific field. So you really are just honing your fine points in the beginning of your 
practice. You know, you've you've learned all of the stats and the facts, and you're and you're finally getting to know these the character of these different sort of patient types and injuries and things like that. And that's what makes it really kind of fun. Um, I don't know as far as like habits that I still continue uh, from my residency and fellowship days. I definitely was a uh, you know a big note taker in my notebook. Um, I had my you know my my little black notebook like a lot of us have. And then, um, you know, as things like Evernote became popular, I would just take pictures and, you know, upload the pictures and the x-rays along with op notes and, and papers and Evernote. And I still do that even today. Yeah, Evernote is, uh, I, I love Evernote. I, I use it for the same thing. I've been using it um, more and more lately. Um, but, you know, for those of you listening that do not know what that is, go and check it out. It's an app that you can, just like Dr. Roberts said, you can put notes, you can put pictures in there. It's easy to organize. And this is, by no way a paid ad or anything. It's just that we both use it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I drew a lot in my in my black book and hand surgeons talk a lot about drawing sort of different um, anatomic structures to better understand them. Um, you'll always hear, hear the stories about Littler drawing all the hands and you can actually even, even go visit his drawings in the New York Museum. <laughs> oh, I didn't I didn't know that piece of information. That's, that's actually pretty cool. Um, Cool. And then just moving on, do you have any other interests or any things that you do outside of medicine? It can be whatever. Uh, I mean, I definitely enjoy working out. I have both the Peloton bike and the Peloton tread down in the basement. Nice. So that's awesome. how I'm keeping sane here during the pandemic. <laughs> yes. I know a lot of, um, a lot of other, you know, orthos are doing the Pelotons and a lot of people in general has really like picked up popularity over this past year or two. Um, I have yet to get one, but I heard it's great exercise and a fun time. Um, so just moving on, I guess we're, you know, we'll get into what our talk for the day is. We're going to talk about a little bit about scaphoid fractures. Um, so Dr. Roberts, say for example, you know, you're called, you're consulted, you had a 25 year old, uh, male football player who fell down onto his outstretched wrist. Um, he had pain, 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 and, it's been about three weeks. He came in and they noticed that he had a scaphoid fracture. Um, before we get too much too far into the history and uh, physical exam findings, can you kind of just go over just some of the anatomy of the scaphoid and, and the important parts to it? Sure, sure. Um, so the scaphoid seems like shouldn't be a big deal, right? I have such a hard time convincing my patients that it requires all of this fuss. You know, as my husband, the trauma surgeon, likes to say, I could swallow that bone. Why do I care? <laughs> um, but it's actually, you know, as I explained to my patients, it's like the keystone of the wrist, you know, it links the proximal and the distal, distal carpal rows. Uh, but the problem with it is that it's 80% covered by articular cartilage, which doesn't leave a lot of area for blood supply to get in. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of the blood supply comes from direct branches from the radial artery that come through the uh, dorsal ridge at the level of the waist. Um, and that accounts for about 80% of the blood supply to the scaphoid. Um, the proximal pole gets its blood supply retrograde, which accounts for the fact that a lot of the um, proximal pole fractures go on to non-union or avascular necrosis. Um, and then the distal uh, portion of the scaphoid actually gets some blood supply um, from the volar branches. Um, and then, uh, what else can I tell you about the, I think. What about like the, the ligaments? I always hear about like the ligaments and like the scaphoid wanting to flex. Like what are what do, uh, I guess, a role as far as, I guess, scaphoid um, mechanics or, or I guess that's a word, mechanics? 
Yeah, so the distal portion is attached to the trapezium and trapezoid, and then it also has like the radioscapocapitate ligament foliarly, which almost acts like a hammock. So it kind of like, you know, bends over that. And then your, your proximal fragment, it's still going to be attached to the lunate, which wants to go into extension. And that's what creates that classic humpback deformity. Yeah, I always, always hear about, well, I don't always hear about that, but I heard about it for the first time a couple of weeks ago and looked it up and I figured out, you know, that humpback deformity, just like you said, that distal fragments flex from those, uh, from those uh, attachments to the trapezium and the scaphoid and the proximal fragment uh, kind of extends from its lunate and triquitium attachments. Now, in, in your practice, what, um, what, I guess the epidemiology, what age group do you typically see this in? Do you typically see this in males, females, young, old, active? Like, what, do you, Is there anything that stands out to you? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's very well established. This is more common in men. And typically, you know, I would say we mostly see younger men, but um, you definitely see these fractures in kids and in a little bit older adults. I think they're more rare in the um, like truly geriatric population because most of those people are going to get, you know, distal radius fractures from fragility. Um, and then it's typically, you know, they've done studies on this, the, you have to fall in about uh, pronation and ulnar deviation with hyperextension past 95 degrees is, is what the biomechanical studies have told us. Wow. Um, but essentially, you know, the volar cortex is going to fail in tension and then the dorsal cortex is getting, you know, compressed. Okay. So, you know, important things to know about scaphoid, number one, the blood supply, uh, most of it, you know, comes from those dorsal um, branches of the radial artery. It's mostly covered in cartilage. Um, and, and we spoke a little bit about the, um, the blood supply, not the blood supply, we talked about the attachments of, you know, the different um, ligaments, which flexes that distal piece and extends that proximal piece. Now, are there any classification systems as you, I know there are like a bunch out there, but are any, are there any that you necessarily use or, or refer to most of the time? I wouldn't say that any of us use these a ton, but there are two sort of classic classification uh, systems. The first one being the Herbert classification system, which uh, first defines, you know, versus an A versus a B fracture, A being stable and B being unstable. And there's really only two stable fractures. That's the tubercle fracture or, or you know, distal pole type of fracture or an incomplete waste. And then everything else is considered unstable. Um, so that's your waist fractures, that's your proximal pole fractures, um, anything with any displacement. Um, and then he further goes on to sort of categorize um, ones that show up late, like a delayed union, um, and then non-unions. Um, and he does sort of go on to classify non-unions into fibrous and, and avascular necrosis, et cetera. But I wouldn't say that's all super useful. Um, there's another classification, the Roos classification, um, and that's based on the orientation of the fracture line, which he defines as horizontal, oblique, transverse, or vertical oblique. And then he says that the horizontal oblique fractures are uh, the most stable because uh, they get some compressive force. Um, and then the most unstable ones are the vertical oblique uh, because they're getting a shear force. But again, I wouldn't say that's you know, something we talk about a lot when we talk about these fractures. Right. Is it kind of just more something that you, that you look at just so you know, like, you know, at least in your head, whenever you see a fracture, so, okay, that's likely going to be unstable, you know, given the orientation of the fracture lines and, and where it is. And it, I guess it may just be a good thing to know um, that way. You, is it easy like to predict 
uh, displacement or predict that, you know, maybe fractures of proximal pole may be more prone to AVN? Or it was kind of just a general way to just think about these? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that A versus B is the most distinct, most important distinction. You know, is it inherently unstable and likely to go on to non-union if we don't do something about it? Or is it probably going to heal just fine in a cast? And almost all of your tubercle fractures, and especially, you know, your partial fractures through the waist are going to be fine in a cast. Anything after that is a little bit of like an art and opinion. <laughs> mm, okay, totally understand. And again, for those listening, you know, stables, you said it about three times, we'll say it again, those tubercle fractures and those incomplete fractures are definitely like an incomplete waist fracture would be a stable fracture. Now, rewinding all the way back. So say, for example, we had this, this patient, this 25-year-old guy fell three, um, three weeks out, still has wrist pain. When they come to your clinic, what are some of the things that you um, think are important to look for on history and physical exam? Um, so I think a lot of our sort of initial responders to these fractures know that scaphoid fractures are something that are often missed. And so, um, it's, it's almost unusual these days that, uh, someone does come in three weeks, but it's not impossible. Um, so the first things that they're always taught to look for, and you guys should look for, are our scaphoid, um, tubercle tenderness, as well as tenderness over the anatomic snuff box. And I would say either one would make me suspicious. You know, I've seen plenty where they're just tender over the tubercle and it, and it has a waist fracture. Um, and then there are some other things like the compression test where you basically um, push the thumb metacarpal into the, uh, you know, into the scaphoid and that should elicit some pain. I wouldn't say we use those terribly often. The main ones we, we do are the um, snuff box and then the tubercle. I would say some other sort of clues a lot of these don't have a bunch of swelling. Um, and so what I often see is, you know, a kid comes in or, you know, a teenager comes in with their parents and they're like, you know, we went to the urgent care. They said the x-rays were negative, but he's got this big bruise. So they will often have kind of a suspicious looking bruise and that, that um, should also clue, clue you in. It can be volar or dorsal. Um, a lot of times it kind of follows the FCR. Um, and then, you know, then you've got to get some imaging, obviously. So, you know, classic imaging is a PA lateral oblique. And then for, if you're suspicious in the office, you want to get a scaphoid view, which is essentially a supinated PA in ulnar deviation. Um, but about 25% of those with a scaphoid fracture won't show up as, you know, positive. By three weeks, you probably would have had positive x-rays. Right. But initially those will likely be negative and then, you know, within a couple of weeks, they'll turn positive. Um, now, one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about as far as uh, physical exam finding, is there anything else on your differential when they come in for, um, you know, wrist pain on that, on that radial side or any other things that you may have seen in your practice that, um, you know, are maybe hiding in the, in the, behind the, the behind the trees as another diagnosis of what might be going on? Um, I mean, you can, they can certainly have non-displaced distal radius fractures. Um, trapezium fractures are unbelievably rare. Um, they could certainly have a fracture at the base of the thumb. Um, so that, you know, those would be sort of in my differential. Um, they could also have just like a ligamentous injury. So you have a, you know, a scapulonate injury that uh, doesn't show up on the x-ray. Like you don't see any widening. You know, some of my mentors would certainly include a pencil grip view in the standard views for escapoid. Uh, workup. Huh. Pencil grip is, is that not, that's not the same as a clenched grip, I, I assume. 
Is that uh, just... Yeah, it's a, it's a clenched one, but they like are holding a pencil at the same time. Ah, okay, okay, that makes sense. And do you get the um, the, the scaphoid view? And I mean, do you just get them for all the ones that you're worried about a uh, fracture? Like you get a normal PA lateral and oblique and then you don't see it. And so you'll, you know, you try to get that scaphoid view in that, in that sense, or is it just sometimes that you get it or all the time? I wouldn't get it for every wrist trauma. I would just get it if I sus suspect it from my exam. So most of the time they've gotten their three regular views and then I, you know, I suspect it on exam and I send them back for the scaphoid view. So at, at what time do you generally move forward to like more advanced imaging, like a CT or MRI, or is there, is there even a role for a CT and MRI in your practice? I think there's definitely a role. The question is, you know, every, there's a lot of controversy right now about how exactly you should use these and, and when. Um, so I know the classic teaching that maybe we've all read about is, you know, you suspect it, you cast it, and then you bring them back in two weeks and get a new x-ray and it should show up by then. But that's two weeks of casting, usually in a young person who's not going to tolerate casting very well. Um, so a lot of times we jump to advanced imaging um, and especially, you know, in two weeks, if it's an unstable pattern, you know, you've already, you, you will have, have seen some displacement in that time. That's definitely happened to me. Um, so you want to catch it before it does displace. Uh, so I would definitely jump to some advanced imaging before waiting two weeks. And I think most people are in that, that headspace too. Um, and so MRI is certainly the most specific. I would say it's probably about 100% sensitive and specific. Um, but as a surgeon, that doesn't give me a lot of information. Uh, right. It really doesn't tell me about the orientation. You know, it'll often just sort of show up as this like white cloud. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't really tell me about the displacement. Um, so it's, it's too much information almost. Um, so I often will use MRI in kids where I don't, you know, kids heal so well that it's very rare that I'm going to be fixing a, a fracture that didn't show up on the x-ray. So I'll get the MRI to prove that they have it and prove that to them and their family that they really do need to put up with this cast. Um, <laughs> and, you know, then I, I know that I don't really need any surgical planning from that imaging. Um, but for adults, um, anyone I would probably want to fix, I'm going to get a CT scan because that's going to show me the character of the fracture and what I need to do to fix it. Um, and it's also much more sort of sensitive for any displacement. You really can't get a good idea for displacement on the MRI. Okay. And so again, just looking at the timeline. So say, for example, if somebody has negative x-rays in the ED or the urgent care center and they're, you know, teen or kid, adolescent, refer to your clinic, you see them, they still have that tenderness right in that snuff box area or tubercle at that point, and you, and you get another repeat, you know, x-ray there and you don't see anything at that point is when you get the MR. Is that, is that correct? Or um, so I mean, actually in our institution, Dr. Starch did a study on the cost effectiveness of this. Um, if you know, you, if you have a positive exam and negative x-rays, you get a CT scan almost right away. Okay. So like down in the ED before they leave, did he get that CT scan? Yeah. Ah, okay. All right. Okay. Cool. Now, because that's one of the things that um, you know, you you sometimes hear hear some things and hear hear other things, and you're trying to figure out what's the best way, what's the best you know timing, you know, to get everything done and, and get these images. So that's definitely good to know. And so when it comes to treating these um, fractures, where what is your overall 
uh, algorithm as far as what are some things that you know you undergo non-operative treatment and then what are some indications for these fractures to be fixed? Um, so your non-operative fractures like your tubercle fractures, your partial um, waist fractures, your truly, truly non-displaced fractures, um, you know, you're going to treat non-operatively in a cast. Um, and there, I think the controversy about this is probably over, but some of us are still sort of holding on to the way that we've always done things. Um, you know, a long, you know, we used to make a long arm cast with a, you know, a thumb spica. Um, and now I think most people have gone to just a thumb spica cast that's short arm, um, but more recent studies show that you don't even need to um, immobilize the thumb. I think in, in fact, in that study, the just plain short arm cast had a slightly higher rate of union, uh, which yeah. I don't, you know, really means, you know, a lot, but you can, you're certainly fine to just put these in a short arm cast. That being said, a lot of us have had a, had, I myself have trouble letting go of the thumb spica. So <laughs> I would go with whatever your attending preference is on that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you just hit all the points I was about to ask. Cause I've read some places that just said, yeah, you know, you do the thumb spot, not the thumb spike, the uh, long arm cast because it helps control, you know, some rotation and then some with the thumb. And then apparently, just like you said, there's some studies that say you don't even need to include the thumb in um, in a cast and they tend to heal just fine. So um, really dealer's choice, I guess, as far as how you treat these. Yeah. And what's your algorithms? Let's say, you know, you have an incomplete, you know, waste or you have a distal pole or, you know, a distal tubercle or a non-displaced fracture. What's your algorithm? Do you have them in a cast for four weeks and you transition them to a short arm or to a uh, removable wrist plan or what do you, you know, how do you kind of go about as far as progression? So the tubercles, distal poles, things like that, that um, get good blood supply, they will often heal in about six weeks. Um, but a truly non-displaced waist fracture that you're treating non-op is probably going to take more like eight to 12 weeks. Uh, so I'm definitely following these guys regularly. Um, and as soon as they don't have any tenderness on their exam, and it's looking like there's some union on the x-ray, I'll start to free them up a bit. Um, I like to keep immobilizing them in something, you know, like either like a some type of thumb spica orthosis made by the OT or just mm. like a Velcro thumb spica, um, something just to remind them that it's still healing um, right. and then get them into therapy to get their motion back. Okay. And so, you know, we have our patients that we know that are going to undergo the non-operative management. So what are the indications that say, okay, well, this is probably something that we need to bring to the OR? Um, so this is where I was talking about, there's a little bit of art and opinion. Um, I think a lot of people are of the opinion that if you can see a fracture on x-ray, then it is by definition displaced. And I'm, I'm personally coming around to that opinion, um, yeah. or it's, or it's at least, you know, by definition unstable. So it's probably going to move on you when you take an x-ray in two weeks and then you're going to wish you'd already done surgery. Right. Um, so anything with, you know, a millimeter of displacement certainly needs to go the, the proximal pole fractures you can't trust to heal on their own so i would certainly put those in your operative group um and then you know other things you might sort of want to look at are um are there any sort of like greater arc injuries you know so that's the sort of fractures around the lunate that i might think you know might portend some instability as well things like um trichotillomania fractures ulnar styloid fractures things like that that might give me a clue that there's more ligamentous damage than than you might initially think Right. And, and and just reading and I guess preparing for this, there are some studies out there that were, you know, talking about casting versus fixing acute fractures. 
and that at two years that they were about the same, but, you know, earlier on, you know, they had some benefits. In your experience, have you noticed any any change as far as if you cast versus if you, you know, fix them? I think we're all more aggressive about which ones, about going ahead and fixing, particularly in young working people or athletes. Um, we just want to get them back to, to work for their sports. So we'll go ahead and fix them um, with the, just the notion that, you know, they're, they're unstable, that fracture pattern's unstable and we should just go ahead and fix it before it's proved itself to be unstable. And is there anything that you're looking at on the x-rays or another like a million and one different type of angles for, you know, in the <laughs> hand, but is there anything in particular that you look at that you take into account as far as I guess, preoperative planning? Um, so, so things people talk about are a scapolunate angle greater than 60 degrees and a radiolunate angle greater than 15 degrees. And then some other things people talk about are uh, um, an intrascapoid angle of greater than 45 degrees. The normal intrascapoid angle would be 24 degrees. Um, I would say I, I honestly don't use these as much as maybe I should. Like a humpback is pretty darn obvious. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can tell. So... Um, I wouldn't, you know, those are good things to know for your tests, but you're, you're not going to be able to miss a humpback deformity when you see it on, a, <laughs> on an x-ray. And, and maybe one thing I should, should go back to CT scans is you really want to make sure that they're in the plane of the scaphoid because you can definitely miss a fracture if it's just in the plane of like the radius, um, which is how they're typically formatted. And when you guys are out on your own, you might have to actually like talk to your radiologist to get them to format that way so that you don't miss anything. Right. And, and just thinking about it. So the radius, I mean, not the radius, the scaphoid is tilted volarly as well as radially, right? So it had to be in that oblique plane. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's totally possible that if it's not in that oblique plane that you couldn't miss the fracture. Hmm. Deals are, these are all nuggets for any of you <laughs> residents out there that, that may be listening to this that has, has a uh, scaphoid come in today that's unquestionable that you're getting a CT scan for. Don't forget to put in the comments to have it in the plane of the uh, scaphoid. Um, so just moving forward. So, you know, we're, we decide we're going to fix it. Um, is there any, anything that you, how do you decide whether you're going to go volar versus dorsal, like the approach that you're going to take to the scaphoid? Um, so I'm just going to get on my little podium here for a second. There are lots of things in orthopedics where you get to pick which way you like to do things. If you're going to fix scaphoids, you have to be a jack of all trades. So you can't just be like, oh, I like to fix these dorsal or, oh, I like to fix these bowler. I like to graft this way. I like to graft that way. Um, and you certainly got to have a few even, you know, vascularized graft tricks up your sleeve because um, these are all different. They have their own little characters and you have to really study them on the CT scan to figure out what the best way to go about it is. Um, so if you just have a straight forward waist fracture that's minimally displaced, you can really go volar or dorsal. Um, you know, some people like to go uh, volar just because it's a little bit easier maybe to get the angle of the screw, but um, you are gonna run into the trapezium and you're gonna, sometimes you have to nibble a little bit away of it to actually get your good starting point. You kind of want your starting point a little more dorsal than you may have access to. Um, and you want it kind of a little bit like a third in from that most radial corner of the scaphoid on the AP view. Um, and another thing that's really important about fixing uh, scaphoid fractures is the placement of your screw. 
Um, so you really want to make sure that you're center center in the scaphoid and that you're 90 degrees to the fracture plane. So studies have actually shown that really being 90 90 um, gives you better compression and, and better chances of healing. Right. And, and are there any cases that I think I just jumped to uh, open versus, you know, volar versus dorsal, but are any cases that you'll do percutaneously, um, you know, fix a scaphoid? Yeah. So you can, I mean, you can do perk or mini open volar and dorsal. Um, percutaneous, often people will use like a large bore needle and put the K wire in through that and then just make like a tiny incision. I would say I typically use like a mini open approach and make just like a tiny T in the capsule in order to get like a good view of my, my starting point. Uh, but if you have a non-displaced one or minimally displaced one, that's like a, a very popular way to fix it. Okay. And another, I guess, style point question that I had, what tips do you have for, I guess, if we'll go about the volar approach, if I remember correctly, like when you're, when you're down in the capsule, there's a certain way that you'll make your, like you make your incision or your, I guess your capsulotomy in line with the ligaments. Is that correct? Is that, is that what you yeah, do? Yeah, I mean, I usually just make it like straight, you know, sort of longitudinal in line with the scaphoid, but I would say the trick to not causing any instability is to tag them. Um, so as soon as I make my capsulotomy, you can really see those two ligaments very clearly. Um, and so I just tag them at the beginning and then I, I sort of bring them behind um, the, the wrist with like a snap and that way it keeps that flap open for me the whole case and I don't lose them. Mm, okay, so one of the things definitely to be on the lookout for is to make sure that you don't cause instability with your approach um, and then to tag everything like you just said and then repair it at the end, okay. Um, so we, I think we spoke a little bit about, you know, some just kind of dealer's choice as far as which approach that you may take open, um, open versus, versus dorsal. Um, do you ever use a arthroscopy, you know, or do you ever use arthroscopic assisted approaches? I would say I don't have a lot of experience with that. Um, but it can definitely give you a better idea of any surrounding ligamentous injuries. Um, I, I, you know, I know some surgeons do it, but it's, it's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know, um, one of our shoulder, shoulder elbow guys loves to do, you know, arthroscopic surgery. Um, so I'm sure there was a way, actually, I saw my first wrist scope not too long ago. It was actually pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I think that's a dealer's choice as well. Now, do you have any tips and tricks for a dorsal approach to the scaphoid? And actually, do you mind just walking us through what that approach would, would look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're gonna sort of find your Lister's tubercle and you can go kind of straight in line with it. And that starting point is uh, where, you know, right where the scaphomunate ligament uh, inserts is just slightly ulnar to the uh, Lister's tubercle. Um, so then, you know, once you've uh, come through the skin, you're gonna look out for EPL and your second dorsal compartment and make sure that those are retracted. And then you're gonna basically, you know, be down to your wrist capsule. And, and I will make like a small T-shape capsulotomy in order to um, see my starting point. And usually, you know, if it's pretty non-displaced, um, then I will try to, you know, not to disrupt as much of the sort of dorsal capsular attachments for obvious sort of vascular reasons. Um, yeah. But sometimes that's like really already disrupted and, and that's how you sort of get your reduction. Um, if you do have to like lift the capsular flap up that much, um, you can use joysticks in the proximal and distal portions in order to manipulate it and get your reduction. 
Um, another great thing about the dorsal approach is uh, it's a great place to take bone graft from. You can just pop blister's tubercle off with a um, with an osteotome and then just you know get some great bone graft from there and, and put it in there if you need to use that to help with healing or with to you know to get your uh, reduction a little bit. Sometimes you, if there's some combination, you want to stick some graft in there. That's always nice. I, I, my trick for getting the starting point, you know, you kind of want that little um, corner just at the edge of the scaphalinate uh, ligament. And I find that if you just let the wrist flex down naturally, and they'll tell you it's about 45 degrees, but whatever is natural for that person, um, you'll, you want to get as, as volar as you can. So you're in the center um, and you let the thumb metacarpal sort of fall where it falls. I find if you uh, put your K wire in line with that thumb metacarpal, you almost always get it where you want to. Mm, those are, that's a good tip right there. I might um, use that um, coming up soon. I think I have a couple, couple skateboard cases coming up next week. So that may be something that uh, I'll pay attention to, or at least, at least I'll, I'll sound somewhat smart. I'm like, ah, oh, shouldn't we, you know, go in line? Oh, how'd you know that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think you're just in touch with the four. It's the KY4. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that, uh, we had a case not too long ago, we had one of those humpback deformities. We did a volar approach, but in your experience, do you have any uh, preference as far as a volar versus a dorsal approach for patients that, you know, have those scaphoid non-unions with that humpback deformity? Um, so, I mean, if you've got a humpback deformity just from, you know, a regular scaphoid fracture, you've got to go bowler. Um, but I think you're, you're starting to get into an important point, which is you cannot talk about scaphoid fractures without talking about non-unions and how to fix them. Yeah, let's get into it. What do, you, <laughs> what do we got? Go for it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, as you guys know, these often get missed, so they're showing up late. Um, and the studies have shown that if it's more than four weeks uh, with no treatment, then they're going to have a pretty poor chance of healing with non-operative treatment. And you'd be surprised how quickly these go on to have um, sclerosis and cavitation, even in a really young person. Um, so in that case, you're going to have to do some, something to re-stimulate healing. Um, which means you're going to have to scrape out the non-union site and you're going to have to put some graft in there and you might have to correct some deformity. Um, on rare occasions, sometimes the, the cartilage capsule, you know, it's all intact. I see this a lot in more like proximal pole fractures that have gone on to non-union and there's some cavitation. And those are the ones where you're going to get away with a more dorsal approach. And you can basically, you know, put your K wire down um, and then over drill it and then you can shove some graft down that hole or you can even use like a very small curette to clean out any cavitation mm -hmm. and then put the graft down the hole and then go ahead and put your screw down and those seem to have a, a pretty good chance of healing that way um, the vast majority however have gone in onto some horrible humpback deformity uh, and you're going to have to go volar um, so there's a couple of ways of um, non-vascular grafting um, so the most uh, classic initial one uh, was basically to take a uh, a large sort of trapezoidal, not even trapezoidal, um, almost like a, a square chunk of bone graft um, and put that into the deformity and use that to correct your deformity. And initially they, they didn't even use um, any uh, any sort of fixation. So no screw or no, no K wire. Um, and then um, the Bruce technique involves like two mash sticks um, that you would take from the volar distal radius and basically um, use those to like almost like a tent pole um, to open up the fracture 
And they would just put that in there maybe with some other bone graft and again, no um, sort of fixation. Um, but you know, modern techniques pretty much all involve screw fixation. Um, there's really not much of a role for even K wires anymore other than like a derotational wire or anti-rotational wire. Um, I myself use the modified uh, roost technique, which I, I you know, learned from uh, Dr. Lee in uh, fellowship as well as Scott Wolf, um, who've written a good paper on how to do it. Uh, so basically that takes the mash stick to prop open your, um, your humpback deformity, and then you're gonna pack the rest of it with graft from the big hole you made in the radius. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you basically use a screw to parallel the, the cortical matchstick. So instead of two cortical matchsticks, you have a, a one matchstick and a screw. Another way is, um, I think the Fernandez Fisk is what it's called, um, which, is, which is that one sort of like almost a triangular trapezoidal wedge that you can shove in volarly. Um, and that has good union rates, but it's very finicky. It's really easy for that little uh, puzzle piece to just pop back out at you over and over again. And you still right. lose your mind. <laughs> <laughs> Go crazy. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there are all these, um, all these different techniques. How do you, is there, I guess one, is there an indication to use one versus the other? I know maybe some were just more historical. Then how do you decide which one to pick a non-vascularized bone graft? I guess, what technique to use? Um, so, I mean, if you've got a vascular necrosis, like it's really just like not coming back, then you're you're gonna have to use some sort of vascularized graft probably. And then you're really really like in the salvage area, you're using like the rib osteochondral graft or um, you know, the medial condyle graft. Um, but I, you know, I would say nowadays, um, a lot of people are coming over to the side that you don't need to use as much uh, vascularized graft. And may, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but that was certainly the way things were leading uh, you know, when I was finishing up my training. Um, so really what I think helps you is, is doing a good um, cleanup of the whole area. So when you get in there, it's even in a young person, it's gonna be like white, really, really hard, surprisingly hard for such a tiny bone. Um, and so you've got to really scrape it out, like really work at scraping it out with the uh, curette. And then you've got to do something to sort of stimulate some, some uh, bone healing. Like I, I'll often use like a, a smaller K wire on both ends um, to stimulate some ingrowth. Um, and if, if you've got some punctate bleeding on either side with that, um, you know that you're gonna, you know, if you do everything, you know, if you line everything up well, you're gonna get good healing. If you really and truly after all of that just still have like white bone, it's probably dead. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, it's it's I think it's very rare that you're in that situation. You know, if you really do a good debridement, um, you'll get back to some bleeding bone, you'll you'll get some ingrowth and and you'll get a good result from non-vascularized bone grafting. Yeah, and I know um, at least I've I've heard some attending say that in these cases of the non-union. Some cases, you know, you definitely have to go and, you know, open up the non-union side and scrape out that sclerotic bone. Um, but some others were saying that you can, you know, pass a K-wire, like you said, and then ream over the K-wire before you put in your screw. And apparently that's supposed to help with, you know, create some um, help, I guess, with the union, you know, help create, you know, break up some of the, um, I guess, that fibrous tissue and help with, you know, unite that fracture. 
Is, is that something that you have seen used a lot or I guess in your experience, that technique? Um, just like just dreaming over the K wire as your way of stimulating healing. Correct. Ah, I, uh, I don't know. I think I think you got to put some kind of graft in there. It doesn't always yeah. have to be cortical. Um, it doesn't always have to be iliac crest. Um, uh, but you have to do you have to do something. I think to bring new bone cells in and just reaming. In my personal opinion, probably isn't enough unless it's like you know one of those ones where you still have like an intact cartilage shell. Um, and it just, it almost healed, but it didn't, you know. Right. And so when we first, you know, when you have these non-unions, we start to think of these um, non-vascularized bone grafts. And again, so in what, in what way, or what will indicate you to say, okay, we should probably be prepared to have to use a vascularized bone graft in this case, is it just, just severe AVN or what are some of the reasons why you would go and, and use one of these, you know, vascularized bone grafts? That's, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Cause you know, you probably go in already with some sort of plan, you know, you, you do a lot of planning for these cases and you've probably decided what you're going to do. Most of the time, I would say a non-vascularized graft before you get in there, the times you're doing a um, vascularized graft, I would say um, you've probably already failed at, at something once. Um, and this is like a secondary procedure. Um, right. There's a lot of controversy about whether you can truly predict AVN on uh, an MRI, even for a proximal pole fracture. Um, so, I mean, if you if you think you see AVN on the MRI and you get in there and you've really cleaned it out well, you'll you know you'll often see some punctate bleeding and and you realize you don't necessarily need to go to that vascularized graft. Um, but it's always good to have up your sleeve. I would say the most common one that, that people do is the one, two ISCRA graft. Um, that's probably the most popular. Um, I've done it like once in, in my training. Um, but most people, like, like I said, are, are sort of leaning towards the notion that the non-vascularized are okay. And the one, two, our CRA graft is that one, two intercompartmental super retinacular <laughs> artery <laughs> that, one, <yeah. laughs> that one from the uh, distal radius and you know I, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier about the medial femoral condyle vascularized bone graft that use the uh, descending genicular artery and I know there's a lot of different bone like vascularized bone grafts you can use you can go volar distal radius dorsal distal radius using you know the volar carpal artery versus a different artery um, now what you know, one of the things we didn't touch base on is if you have this gate 49 union and you just do not treat it at all, you know, they thought that they just sprained their wrist and they've had pain, 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 but never really came to a doctor and came to a doctor three or four years later, still complaining of wrist pain. What are some of the things that these, um, these skateboard fractures can lead to? So, yeah, that's a big part of my conversation with patients again, because they're like, this bone is so small. Why do I care? Um, and I'll tell you because it's the keystone on the wrist and it goes on to give you snack rest or scapoid non-union advanced collapse. Um, so I'll tell these patients that if they don't have it fixed and it goes on to non-union, they're going to be asking for arthritis type of procedures when they're in their thirties and forties and trying to pick up their kids. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's like, you know, that's when you're talking about, you know, stylodectomies versus fusions and proximal carpectomies, all things that they can avoid, by listening to their local uh, <laughs> local orthodox. Another can of work. <laughs> now, what is your um, typical post-op uh, protocol for these patients? Do you 
have them in splints? Do you allow them to range? You know, when do you allow them to start to progress weight bearing or I guess lifting things? Um, so I usually keep them in a cast. Um, okay. I think people would keep them in, you know, either a thumb spike or orthosis or, or even a fracture brace. I, I just tend to have a, a quite a few patients I can't necessarily trust, you know, particularly the younger guys. Um, they will, you know, take off their brace more than they would like to admit. So I cast them. Um, and these will, even with the, you know, the screw for a regular skateboard fracture or, or grafting the screw for an, a non-union, it typically takes about um, eight weeks before they are really not having tenderness over the fracture site. Um, but sometimes if they're, you know, if they're feeling good at six weeks, I will let them start doing uh, range of motion with therapy. You're always trying to balance stiffness and letting it feel. Um, so somewhere around six to eight weeks, I'll, I'll let them start therapy, but I would keep them in some sort of orthosis when they're not um, doing their therapy exercise. Doing that. Okay. Yeah. And, and do you, is there any, are there any um, special, not special, but think considerations for athletes and does that change, you know, if this is a um, 25 year old, you know, guy that's on a professional NFL team that has this injury, does that change your, your algorithm at all? For sure. And I mean, there's a couple of papers written on this specifically uh, for the young working patients or the athletes, we're going to go ahead and fix almost any scapegoat fracture um, just to get them, you know, back to work without work or play, you know, without any delay. And then we'll typically move them earlier. So I think, you know, more on the six weekend, uh, we would stop doing any sort of complete immobilization and start range of motion. Um, for like professional athletes, you might even let them go back around six weeks with some sort of protection, like a soft cast, um, depending on the sport. Uh, so we're definitely more aggressive when it comes to those patients. Okay. Yeah. I think that's always a good thing to um, keep in mind. Cause then, you know, I mean, like for them, it's, you know, their, their career, you know, like they gotta be able to try to get back or get it quicker to rehab and definitely fixing these, um, allows them to regain emotion a little bit earlier and allows them to start, you know, rehab a little bit earlier compared to non-operative treatment with the cast, which you're in the cast for, like we spoke about a little bit earlier, yeah, at least maybe six weeks or so. And then you're still transitioning to a, you know, a thumb orthosis. So that may be a little bit longer before you get back to on the field or practice or, you know, whatever the, whatever sport it may be. Even if we let them go a little bit earlier to therapy, I would say most of us wait until around 10, 12 weeks to get our CT scan. Um, so I, you know, I almost always confirm on CT scan. I wouldn't say that's everybody's practice, but um, I think it's a good one, especially because, you know, you can miss so much on an x-ray. Uh, and then biomechanical studies have told us that even just 25% healing um, is enough, is strong enough with a good screw fixation. Um, but I would say most of us use about 50%. Um, and I think in the clinical studies, 50% has, has panned out to be a good number. The question is, how do you really measure? You're just kind of eyeballing it most of the time. <laughs> that looks about right. <laughs> so partial union, it's important to know that partial unions are very common. And if you've got, you know, good screw fixation and um, about 50% of the scaphoid, it's going to be okay. Well, Dr. Roberts, I think this was great. I think we touched on a lot of different high points as far as skateboard fractures. We talked about the anatomy. We talked about the blood supply, uh, the classification. We talked about, you know, physical exams, what to look for in imaging, when to get imaging, what plane to get imaging uh, in, in case there's any ED docs or any PAs or residents, you know, listening to this. Just remember, get a CT in the, in the long axis of the skateboard. Uh, we spoke about non-operative 
um, treatment, operative treatment. You know, we kind of went over some of the different non-vascularized grafts that you can use as well as some of the vascularized grafts as well. Uh, Dr. Roberts, is there anything else that you think is important for anybody to come away with listening to this talk on scapoid fractures? I think we hit most of the highlights. Um, if I were going to give you some cautioning, I, I forgot to back in the operative section, maybe just tell you about K-wire breaking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just, you know, just be careful because those K-wires are, are kind of flimsy. One thing you want to do is uh, you can, you can over drill uh, on fluoro so that you make sure you don't hit that, that distal cortex and pull your K-wire out. Um, and you really want to sort of slide up and down the K-wire and make sure you're in, you know, in line with the K-wire so you don't snap it on your way out. Yeah. And I think one, th one more thing, and I, I think you may have, you touched on a little bit is that, you know, with, through our Volo approach, sometimes, you know, in order to get the right trajectory, you sometimes have to go through that trapezium in order to make sure that you're, um, you know, you want to get that 90, 90 to whatever fractional line you get. Do you ever do that? And if you do, is there anything, you know, does it ever worsen anything in that um, scapho trapezial joint? No. I mean, I think that sometimes you'll read something about some, about, increased arthritis in that joint. I, you know, I don't see any of that. It's, I think it's totally fine to nibble a little bit of a way to get a good start point. That's the most important thing for healing. Well, awesome. Well, Dr. Roberts, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and at the end of our talks, we always, you know, give our guests a way to, for our, uh, for our listeners to reach you, whether you want them to follow you on social media, website, email, anything that you want to share. You don't have to, but if you want to <laughs> go for it. Uh, I mean, you can find me on the, the Columbia Ortho website, um, and I'm happy to answer any questions via that that you might have. Perfect. Well, Dr. Roberts, again, we appreciate you so much for performing on the podcast. Great episode. And um, again, thank you so much. You're very welcome. My pleasure.